Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Our lives are filled with objects that matter to us in various ways. The objects we have change in meaning over time, often going from very dear and precious to meaningless within short periods. The study of objects across history is so endlessly interesting to people that we will fill gorgeous buildings around the world with some objects to observe in droves while some other objects we put into landfills to decay. But the understanding of objects can be so much more than this simple view. A recent book by Dr. Maya Katrositz, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity, which is out now from the University of Chicago's Class 200 New Studies and Religion series, offers a fresh perspective on objects, looking beyond the physical material state to consider how collective imagination shapes the formation of objects and the experience of reality. This was such an intriguing and challenging and thought-provoking read for me, but I couldn't quite put into words what I was experiencing because it was so new to me. However, a recent review of the book by Dr. Caroline Bynum, Professor Emerita at the Institute for Advanced Study in Columbia University, was helpful for me to articulate what I took away from the book. Bynum writes in her review, quote, The individual interpretations in Katrositz's book are elegant and persuasive. The writing is some of the clearest discussion of often opaque theory that I have seen. And later goes on to write, in short, this will be a challenging, even moving book for scholars in several different fields of the humanities. It could well be used with undergraduates as a model of how to think with theory. And it was so well stated that I had a big light bulb moment. Indeed, I found Bynum's words to be very accurate for myself. Something I often struggle with as I read theory is to apply my clunky understanding of the work to actual things I see. And in this conversation, I dug into some of the aspects that were beyond my comprehension in the moment, and I came away with a delightful conversation with Dr. Maya Katrositz that I know you will love. Dr. Maya Katrositz is Assistant Professor of Religion at Denison University, and I hope you enjoy our conversation about her latest book, The Lives of Objects.
Dr. Maya Katrositz, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to have you. I'm wondering if we can just start off by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit. Okay, sure. Um, I'm assistant professor of religion at Denison University, and that's in a tiny town in Ohio. Um, I work on antiquity um, from the first through fourth centuries, um, generally, sometimes a little outside that, um, but specifically Christianity and Judaism in that period. Um, but I also um, work in contemporary cultural studies, so things like um, diaspora and migration studies. Uh, I do a lot of queer theory, um, psychoanalysis, um, affect theory, so in, in kind of that range of material. Awesome. That is quite a lot of hats that you wear. Uh, we're going to get into all that in a few minutes as well, because one of the things I always love to do whenever I start with new guests is I, I kind of trace their, you know, the, the pathfinding story of guests. Like, so you're a scholar of ancient Mediterranean and focused largely on Christianity and Judaism, as you've mentioned, but I'm curious how you found your way into those areas of interest. Can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly story and the path you've taken over the past um, years of your life? Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. Um, and I also never know how to answer it. It seems like the story is always a little bit different because there's, there's a lot of ways um, to tell this story. I kind of, uh, I, it seems obvious to me now that I do what I do. Um, but I think it was just like a long series of accidents that got me here. Um, so uh, yeah, I was like living in New York City after college, and um, I was doing all, all kinds of various things. So I worked in the fashion industry really briefly. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, for, for four months. It was um, terrible. Um, <laughs> I did some acting in like the avant-garde theater scene. Um, I taught in the New York City public schools. I taught public middle school. Um, oh, wow. Nice. Years. Yeah. Yeah. It made me a much better teacher, actually. Um, Heck Yeah. And I, I worked for a poetry organization for a few years, too. Um, and so I was just kind of like living fully New York City life. You know, I was just kind of um, jumping around in different, different communities. And I, while I was teaching, actually, I decided I wanted to, wanted to take some um, classes in, you know, like biblical studies or old Christian stuff, you know, Christian history. And and. I had no intent on starting a career in this kind of thing. I didn't even think, I didn't think of myself as somebody who wanted to be an academic, um, but I took a couple of classes and, and met my advisor, my future advisor. And um, he was like, oh, you seem to be, you know, I was doing like twice as much of the work for the courses that yeah. <laughs> I was in than I needed to. And I was, I was coming at the material, I think in a pretty oblique way. Um, just, uh, you know, sort of with my, you know, literary and arts um, interests kind of foregrounded. And he, you know, my would-be advisor um, said, did you ever think about doing PhD work? And I said, no, um, <laughs> I had never thought of it. And so that sort of kicked it off in a formal way. But um, yeah, so I think I come at this work as a writer who found content that's one way to think about it. I, you know, uh, somebody who loved um, and still loves writing and um, found really rich content to work at. Um, but I think there's another part of me that uh, finds um, the work of history to be a really kind of curious process um, and, and Christianity to be a knot that will be untying for for quite a long time 
Um, so uh, yeah, I could I could say more if you want, but that's. Kind of did you grow Did you grow up in either of these traditions, like within Christianity or Judaism or anything like that? Like, what was the instigating content, like intrigue with these with this specific area? Yeah. Okay. So my dad is you know kind of agnostic Catholic, right? He grew mm -hmm. up. Catholic thought he was going to be a priest and then went to college and studied philosophy and um, uh, so you know he grew up uh, or I grew up having his uh, you know sense of the Bible as a literary something you read for the stories right but mm -hmm. uh, in a literary fashion but not from any sort of pious perspective and my mom's family was like kind of mainline Protestant um, Mennonite and Mennonites um, and so uh, she wasn't a churchgoer until maybe I was eight. And, you know, I, I think this fun, story is really funny and interesting, actually. When I was eight, I started asking questions about death. Mm. And she didn't really know how to answer <laughs> them. And so she decided going to church was going to be the way that she answered those questions. So we started going to church, my, my mom and my sister and I, when I was um, around eight. And I got real involved in church life. I also decided I wanted to be a pastor at 16. You know, 16, I had the, like this call experience. Wow. And, and um, really believed I was going to be a pastor. And, um, and my church life actually fell apart um, a few years later, just because I had had this, I had this experience that was very traumatic, a, this experience with violence, and I felt church didn't answer that experience very well. Um, but, you know, my arts life did, you know, writing was a great venue for me and, and theater, those felt like they felt complicated. Um, they felt uh, like they held complexity and and um, darkness better than than churches I had encountered it. So, you know, in a certain way, what I do is sort of reconciling those things. I think you know my my dad's suspicion of religion and his love of philosophy and the Bible as literature and and my mom's sort of uh, you know her complicated reasons for being in church and, and church's unsatisfactory response to my own experiences. So I, I think that's all kind of tied up in there too. Wonderful. Uh, so where did you do your PhD program? Were you living in New York City and enrolled in a program there while you were living there and working in all these other areas? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Union Theological Seminary in New York. So a really amazing uh, place um, with, you know, it's, it, they're not, I mean, they're sometimes training pastors, but, um, you know, it's situated right next to Jewish Theological Seminary and Columbia University. Um, and so it, it's sort of, you know, it's affiliated with Columbia in a lot of ways. So, um, so it was, it's full of activists and artists. It's a really vibrant place where um, you learn more from this. Well, I shouldn't say more. <laughs> you learn as much from the students as the faculty members and a lot yeah. of students, you know, um, it's just, it was a beautiful, naughty place at K-N-O-T-T-Y place to go <laughs> to school. And so, um, so that definitely informs the kind of eclecticism and interdisciplinary thing that I do. And what an incredible part of New York City as well to live in and study oh, for yeah. a couple of years. You know what I mean? It's just such an amazing place. I love going to that part of New York City. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, I think the reason I'm such a wide reader is because, uh, you know, a wide reader and, and there's so, uh, I'm always appealing to things outside of the strict um, confines of the field. It's just because where I learned this stuff 
I, you know, was, you know, I was also going to museums and shows and, and um, you know, stitched into the literary community in New York too. And that, that all felt very integrated to me. It didn't, I, you know, it didn't feel like I was self-consciously deciding to apply arts to the study of religion or something. It was just, I was thinking these things alongside each other. Awesome. You know? Well, uh, so then from there, from that, from that experience in New York City, is that where you landed your Denison job that you're currently in? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I taught for a brief time, just like in a visiting position at Amherst College in Massachusetts and, awesome. and then got the job. So, so yeah, I've, I've been at Denison for most of my, my teaching life. Wonderful. And so we're going to talk a little bit about your, your latest book today. And you have this new book out this year in 2020 called The Lives of Objects, Material, Culture, Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christianity from the University of Chicago's Class 200 New Studies in Religion series. Oh, yeah. And so this is a cool series because there's so much unique approaches to the way these books are like written, laid out. Like I kind of see this as a pretty special series right now. And I'm curious yeah. about like the woven thread between these books, because, you know, I had Dr. Julian Thomas on yeah. the show to talk about his book and he's in the same series as your yeah. book. And I'm curious how your relationship with the University of Chicago Press and Class 200 manifested and, you know, how you see the purpose of this series that they're doing over there. Oh my gosh, well, I wrote the book before I proposed it. I'm, I'm pretty bad at book proposals, actually, in, in that I tend to write sort of ambitious book proposals, and then people don't really believe that I'm going <laughs> to pull it off, or, or that, you know, they don't, oh, I'm not very good at selling it, maybe, is the problem, but I'm pretty good at executing books, so nice. um, when it's executed, when it's finished, I'm better, you know, it's there. People can see what I'm doing and they don't have to speculate on whether it's going to work or not. They can judge based on the, the product. So I wrote this book and then sent it to um, Class 200. Um, and, uh, and I mean, the series itself, like, it gives me a lot of hope for the study of religion, actually. I mean, it's just, Katie and John, uh, Katie Lofton and John Modern and, and Kyle Wagner, who are editors for this series, um, they're just, they're pretty visionary, I think. Um, the series is, I, what is the main criteria? Coolness is maybe the main criteria, it seems. Interesting. <laughs> Returning coolness to the study of religion. Um, but uh, yeah, innovation, um, where writing, I think what appealed to me about it is that, um, the art of, of scholarly writing was really foregrounded and that feels important to me. It feels resonant with, with my values too. Um, yeah, I just, it feels like it has some new energy to it. Well, and the, and the title of the series is New Studies in Religion. And yeah. to me, that really stands out. Um, and, you know, from reading your book, I can tell that you are, and from your descriptions of your years living in New York and your other careers that you've been in before this, that you're somewhat of like an academic polymath. Like you seem to go in many directions. Um, you're interested in classical studies, history, anthropology, literary, gender, and queer studies. And I'm curious, like, how you manage all this. How do you keep all these individual fields straight in your mind as you approach projects like that of this new book, The Lives of Objects? How do you stay organized in your head with all these ideas from all these different areas? Oh, yeah, good question. How do I keep them straight? I mean, I guess I don't keep them straight. <laughs> 
every reader. Um, and I get pretty bored pretty quickly. Um, so I'm always kind of reading a lot of wildly different kinds of things at the same time. Um, so like I wake up usually around five um, because I, well, I have a nine-year-old and um, so between five and seven is the quietest, least, um, you know, uh, chaotic time in my day typically. And, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, pretty focused at that time or, you know, I have a good soft focus at the time. And so I, that's when I read. And so like this morning I read, what did I read? It was like three pages or something on the transnational history of skin lighteners. Wow. Um, maybe five pages on, on the philosopher Porphyry and, and, you know, and Galen on embryos. Um, I read some poems by Stacey Casarino. You know, I scrolled some things down in a notebook. So like, that's just the way I, part of my restlessness, um, I guess, but, but it makes for some really interesting, you know, thoughts at, at 5.30 AM or whatever. Mm. And I think that like, I, mm, I honestly don't understand the neat little boxes that we've cordoned off some of these things into. Like, I, like there's part of me, I think that just like actually doesn't get why we wouldn't track themes across disciplines, you know, or, or why we have <laughs> disciplines. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do, but yeah, part of the, as you saw from the book, part of the work then is sort of reconstructing lineages, how ideas track in, in a particular field. So I, I, you know, I do sort of, you know, have to keep them straight in that fashion. Have um, you, have you found like a group of colleagues that like see this field the same way as you do, like where you're all kind of like dabbling in several different fields and then and then uh, bringing it back to the field of the academic study of religion like have you found like a little group of scholars who are kind of doing something similar that can kind of keep you motivated and inspired to keep doing what you're doing oh well I mean I think there's a lot of people doing much more interdisciplinary work in religion now I mean in the field of like early Christian studies uh, that is I don't uh, it's hard to say um, if that's more or less true, there's it, it, different subfields in the study of religion, maybe more or less um, interdisciplinary. But um, but I think there's a lot of us working across um, different. I mean, I would say I'm a little I, I'm more interdisciplinary than your average bear, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of us working in you know in gender studies and queer theory and and religion or early Christianity. Um, you know, um, diaspora and migration studies has got more of a hearing in this field, um, these days post-colonial theory for sure. So yeah, I mean, I like having the widest range of conversation partners possible. Like I really like to talk to people who don't know anything about the study of religion or don't know anything about um, early Christianity or, or ancient Judaism or anything, um, you know, but who have like completely different frames of reference and I just learn a, a lot from them. So, you know, and I also, a lot of my conversation partners have a much more traditional relationship to the field as well. Um, and their disciplinary standpoint feels very important to me as well. So, I, I mean, I, and I think the book sort of reflects that as well because there's, you know, there's some kind of traditional moves in the book as well as some really kind of, I know, more you could say like edgy or or experimental um, um dimensions to it as well nice well let's get into the book so we have the lives of objects material culture experience and the real and the history of early christianity and you write in the introduction of the book how this project began with a curiosity about the renewed attraction to material culture yeah. in the ancient world and i want to know a little bit about the the genesis of how this book came about 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, any, every time I narrate this too, I feel like I'm being a, just a little bit disingenuous. <laughs> Only because when I'm writing, you know, I don't know if you have this experience of creativity also, but I have no idea what a book is going to turn into or, or like, I have no idea what the central argument is even going to be. Um, while I'm writing it, like I don't set out with, and this is part part of the reason why I probably I'm I'm terrible at book proposals before I've written a book. Um, <laughs> but I was like I was writing a whole lot of little various pieces, um, and they didn't seem to go together in any um, obvious way or any interesting way, I should say. Um, and and I was doing this over years, so I was like writing a little bit on ruins here, you know. So that's where the ruins chapter came from. I was writing a little bit on inscriptions and memorialization. Um, for a little while. Um, I was doing a piece on ancient sexuality. Um, I was interested in healing amulets. Um, and like while I'm writing these pieces, and so I found myself, you know, interested in material culture. Like I was just simply interested in very specific instances of material culture. And I kept asking myself, well, what is so appealing about this for you? And why are we all so enamored? Why has the field been so enamored with physical artifacts? And why is it coming into, um, you know, this kind of new moment where everybody's, you know, additionally sort of uh, putting energy and effort into thinking about, you know, architectural remains or manuscript variations, you know, the stuff of, of ancient history. So like while I'm writing all these little pieces, you know, these other things are going on. Like I'm, I'm like have these big questions, right? Um, so this question of why material culture is such a preoccupation, um, why, why do we seem to be sort of fetishizing it in a particular way? Um, another question that's like kind of always on my mind is how, how do we get at experiences that, that don't make the official register, um, both in the past and in the present? You know, I was thinking about objectification, why we objectify one another, why certain people are more objectified than others, like what are the, I mean, I sort of know why, but, you know, racism, sexism, etc. But, but I wanted to know more about the processes of objectification. Um, and then I think like this, you know, underneath all that there, or not underneath, but in the center of all that is, is your, your life, right? Your life is going on while you're writing. And so um, I'm like, you know, I had these stomach aches that felt sort of inexplicable for a long time. You know, I would just get these terrible, terrible stomach aches and they would land me in bed. And I'm reading about healing amulets um, for people with stomach problems. And that felt interesting to think those things together. Um, so while I'm writing, it's just like, like sort of subtly shaping the content in, in ways that you don't fully realize. And then you're putting the book together and then you have to like narrate what all those pieces mean. Right. Mm. So like the theory is just really me, me trying to make sense of what I was doing while I was writing all these pieces and trying to rationalize it, but doing so in the way that is that's pressing the most sort of um, it, trying to be as I hate saying edgy because it's not like I'm trying to be provocative. Mm. I really want to ask the hardest questions possible, the most kind of central, subtle questions possible. Um, about my own interests and the interests of the field. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that's all. Well, yeah. And like something else that was really jumped out at me was I went into this book thinking it was going to be about something slightly different 
than it was. And it was a surprise in that regard. So your book is about material culture, yet you look beyond the physical which yeah. is the angle of the book that I wa- that I as a non-expert w- am struggling with still. Yeah. yeah. And so, can you explain what you mean by material culture in the book? Because I feel like you're pushing a boundary here. You know yeah. what I mean? And then tie it back to the context of the ancient Mediterranean in which the book is written. Yeah. Okay. Great. Your questions are so good. This oh, thanks. So yeah. Um. So. Uh... Yeah, what is material culture? Yeah, so I mean, the t- so first of all, the title is a little bit of a trick, right? So the lives of objects, material culture experience real. It sounds like we're going to be talking about objects. Yay. Yeah, like, like bowls and cups yeah. and stuff Let like me that. describe this space to you. Let me tell you about the dimensions of this ancient dining room. Exactly. Um, and that's not at all what it's doing, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I did that a little bit on purpose. The title, my partner is actually an academic and he's in the, he studies ancient history as well. And so he helped me with the, the title for this book um, because I, you know, I always want to name it something real, you know, kind of lyrical. And evocative and he's like well you're talking about material culture and the whole thing challenges material culture so just put material culture you know he's, so so yeah the title has this kind of uh it seems like it's a little bit more traditional than it is but i like that i, I think that's a, i like the surprise element of it um but yeah so there's in if we think about um you know work in black studies and and queer theory over many or then post-colonial studies there's been a lot of challenges to the question of what is matter what matters right and in the most public ways we can think like black lives matter right that's that's a challenge to the question of of what's what is given credence what is seen is to taken to be the substance of of political life um and and how blackness and black lives are are um made immaterial Right. So these are epistemological challenges in, in queer theory. You know, there's um, Judith Butler's book, Bodies That Matter, about how, uh, you know, um, ideologies of gender are really what create uh, how, gen- you know, bodies are how gender materializes in, in, in certain ways. Right. And that's what we have to contest And the lives that are that don't um, properly perform gender are, are seen to be, be illegible. So the very stuff in front of us is much more than just stuff, right? The, the very characteristics of stuff, what we take to be substantive and material is already a socio-political negotiation. And so it seemed important to me um, to ask those questions of material culture, even though material culture seems to be such a kind of like an obvious thing. So, um, so yeah, so that's the, uh, the epistemological foundation there. Um, the, uh, yeah, and then um, I can give you examples if you want. But That'd be great. I'd love one. Okay. So, um, so in post-colonial studies, if we think about France Fennell and Amy Césaire, um, these are two, um, you know, uh, thinkers from um, French colonial Martinique um, who uh, figure in the book. So um, Césaire, um, helps us understand how, like, for instance, um, colonialism fuses uh, colonized people to the ruined colonial landscape, right? So in some of his poetry, he expresses himself as, as the ruined landscape to talk about colonial ruination. And so I, 
um, apply this to ancient texts in the Gospel of Mark, um, you know, for instance, to think about, um, you know, the way Jesus's body fuses with the ruined temple in that text. Um, so, uh, so the way people and objects sort of merge with one another um, and, and the kind of colonial, uh, you know, uh, poignancy that has. Um, so that's one example. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in one spot in the book, you describe like these as like the quote objects of attachment, those relationships, yeah. figures, and elements that live on in the psyche. Yeah. So like there's a few things that I don't, that I've never really associated with physical objects, right? Like yeah. living on in the psyche yeah. elements. And, you know, I'm wondering if you can spell this out for any would-be readers out there who are wondering how objects of attachment in the psyche can be considered material culture because it's a fascinating idea. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So the main thing is like uh, what we, I'm trying to expand what we think of as material culture, right? So, so material culture or, or culture materializing, we should think about the different ways that that is, that, that, that happens, right? So one of the things I talk about is fantasy, fantasy life as, as um, the way culture materializes, language, particularly acts of cultural translation and that stuff. Um, so um, non-dominant forms of sexuality. So like I'm using theories of the psyche, like psychoanalytic theories, you know, beginning with Freud, if we think about Freud. For Freud, objects are, you know, things that we want. It's the object of our desire. Mm. Okay. So um, then there's like objects relation, the object relations theory. And so Melanie Klein is in this, in this line of thinking. And for her, objects um, get digested, sort of consumed and digested psychologically. Okay, so the things that we want live on in our minds. So like classical psychoanalytic theory, if you think about, you know, um, um, the mother-child relationship, for instance, which is central in psychoanalytic theory, right? The mother-child relationship is represented in the psyche as the breast, right? So the breast becomes, an, a, you know, kind of a symbol of the mother, and it's an object that lives on in the psyche, okay? So um, I'm trying to bring that alongside that idea that objects are um, signifiers of relationships and that they're, they're the results of processes and they're never simply external to us. It's never that easy. Um, and thinking about how we objectify human beings in relationships um, and putting that in conversation with material culture. So maybe that sort of fills that out a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you also begin the book by talking about uh... I, I love this quote, non-obvious physical artifacts. And so I'm wondering if you can say like what some examples of these non-obvious physical artifacts are and what your goal is in shining the light on the non-obvious. Like why do you like go to great lengths to bring the non-obvious into the book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so it's actually not obvious histories of physical objects, um, but I think the, the way you formulated it is also true in that I'm interested in, in things that we could think of as artifacts that wouldn't be obviously so. Um, so, um, so the non-obvious histories of physical artifacts, so like, uh, okay, um, inscriptions. So I'm just trying to think of what's the most efficient example here. Um, so in memorial inscriptions, we think of those as just kind of the celebration of life and an accomplishment. You know, we have um, in, 
there's this rise of um, epigraphic culture in the ancient world where people are writing the accomplishments and, and the patronage of, of important figures on buildings, for instance, um, or, you know, on graves to, to mourn and celebrate the life of people um, to show their relationships. So I'm asking what's between the lines of those memorializations? Um, what is um, what are the frustrations um, in memorialization? And, and one of the things that I find is this kind of reckoning with sovereignty. So like political sovereignty, meaning like political autonomy and self-determination, right? So, so conquered peoples um, who've lost a lot, including you know, some cultural intactness are often recording between the lines of these memorializations, um, recording those very losses, right? And so we, we can't, we have to read a little bit more delicately. Um, we have to read for, for um, felt experiences, not just what's, you know, on the dominant historical record. Mm. Um, in that same chapter, there's um, like when I talk about the healing gems related to stomach um, troubles, which are I just find them so interesting. These little healing gems, um, they often um, represent healing. For, you know, like the, the like uh, they often represent struggles with illness as, as like uh, battle or conquest or you know um, war. You know they, that imagery overlaps. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so I wanted to think about like the visceral, like literally visceral, like the ways that we feel in the gut, um, things like colonial or imperial food chains, you know, like um, the way one person's health and wellness um, is implicated in another person's, um, you know, death or, or neglect. Um, so you know, these healing gems, which just seem to be kind of incidental or, or might tell us a little bit something about ideology, they also might be an archive. You know, I, I borrowed um, this word, uh, I borrowed this phrase, um, the, the um, a visceral archive of felt experiences of, of colonial conditions. Like we feel that stuff in our gut in a way, in a way that that's, that represents, un, you know, that's not on the official historical record. Yeah, well, and I, I love the fact that you brought in politics a little bit as well, uh, because I love how you delineate between the modern and ancient understandings of the word nation. Yeah. In the book, And I'm curious if you can frame, like, why the context of nations matters for this book. Yeah, well, I'm trying to um, circumvent religion. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, so um, anytime you're trying to talk about belonging, you got to stay real complex. So if you think about social life in antiquity, um, you got to stay real complex. Unfortunately, because of um, modern, which are also colonial categories of, of religion, um, we think of, you know, the first through fourth centuries as, you know, a history of, if we think about the history of Christian, Christianity, it's like the blooming of a religion. So I'm trying to... Um, use the category of, um, you know, nation as different than this geopolitical entity that we've got now, right. but peoplehood to think about how, how people are not um, working on, you know, creedal categories yet. They're not working on this, like, you know, this notion that, you know, especially in the first and second century, you know, um, they're, they're thinking about, um, 
you know, peoplehood in terms of, you know, the God that they belong to is part of that and the geography is part of that. But, but I think like ethnic belonging is actually a much more salient category. Um, and it changes the questions we ask about um, these texts. Um, even when there is something more like a category of religion, even when there is, um, when there are creeds, we still have to stay attentive to these questions of peoplehood, of ethnicity, of, of um, you know, colonial cultural erasures. Um, and so that's, that's why I emphasize that um, mainly. Wonderful. Well, let's tie in early Christianity too. Like in the, in the book, you mentioned some texts, like you mentioned the gospel of Mark as being, you know, dense with the themes that you attribute to this book. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that as well, because I love teaching the gospel of Mark to my students. And I'm curious if there are ways where I can point out new things in the gospel of Mark to my students that maybe I would have overlooked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I love teaching the gospel of Mark to um, the, yeah. So the way the gospel of Mark figures in a couple of the chapters, um, so there's all kinds of ways to live and die. <laughs> this is kind of a dark and heavy way to start. There's I love kinds, that. Yes, there's all kinds of ways to live and die. Um, and so, because in this book, I'm interested in the different ways um, of living and dying, especially in, in colonial worlds. The Gospel of Mark, um, I think, is a, is a, is a pretty... Um, poignant text in this way. So there's like a lot of pained bodies, um, you know, just like lying around in the Gospel of Mark. And like all the healings, like every time there's a healing practically, it seems sort of like ambivalent or it's sort of rough or um, it's incomplete or Jesus insults somebody or he's kind of hesitant to do it or he doesn't do it right the first time, you know? So like it interferes with all these kind of modern fantasies of, of Jesus as healer for one. So that's why it's really fun. But like even Jesus' transfiguration and the resurrection that they're, they're um, you know, they're not these scenes of glory, <clears throat> excuse me, of glory and completion they're sort of like half-baked, you know? Um, so I think like that text appeals to me for, for those reasons, but like this text is also just not about Christianity in any way. It's, it's not even really about Jesus for me. Like Jesus is rather this kind of figure through which like people are considering um, experiences of colonial loss, uh, of objectification of themselves mm. becoming objectified bodies. Um, He's this figure where like Judeans, you know, it's a text about Judeanness, how they're contemplating their own sovereignty, their own cultural and political sovereignty and the loss of that. Um, you know, the question of chosenness, Judean chosen, Israel is chosen is of course a central theme in Israel's history. And, and like that, you know, whether Israel's special or not is, is it's, it, this is written at a moment after the, the Judean war, you know, Roman Judean war, who knows whether it's right after or, or, you know, decades after, but it seems to be contemplating the, the Roman Judean war. And that, that throws into crisis so many things, including, you know, um, the specialness or, or presumed chosenness of, of Israel. So I think that's kind of on the docket too for the Gospel of Mark. So I just find it to be like a really, uh, yeah, language and, and the losses around um, speaking 
um, when you're translating yourself into colonial culture is a really um, dense, densely um, populated theme in the, in the Gospel of Mark. So, so it works well for a bunch of the chapters in here. So it's sort of stitched in, in two or three of the chapters. Well, and you also tie in like pre-Jesus books, like Israelite and Judean books like Daniel yeah. and Maccabees. How do these play in as well? Yeah, I mean, that's part of, part of it is that I wanted to um, find in these themes that are in, you know, um, first and fourth century Christianity, I wanted to tie them to, and I talk about um, Greek and Roman literature also, um, of course, but I wanted to make sure that I was tying a Christian literature to the history of Israel um, because, the, you know, it's Chris, Christianity, the term Christian is sort of invented by accident. This is mm -hmm. one of the things that I've um, been arguing strongly for. And thus, we shouldn't be, you know, we should be really careful about how we think about these texts. You know, instead of reading them automatically, um, you know, even even relatively late into the third century as, as you know, about Christian identity, when we do that, we've already overdetermined how to read these texts. So by tying these themes to, you know, Daniel, which is a Hellenistic um, Judean text, and then you have, you know, um, you know, fourth Maccabees, which is first century, then, um, um, you know, uh, a Jewish martyrological text. So I wanted to um, make sure that I was tying, you know, early Christianity to um, Judean and Israelite literature in a, in a thoroughgoing way. Um, and these themes are taken up, you know, in, you know, when they talk about Josephus, Josephus really identifies with Daniel. So um, it made sense there too. How does uh, Paul fit in? Cause you talk about the acts of Paul within the book. Where does, where does that uh, fit in within the book as well? Yeah. So acts of Paul and Thecla, I mean, I'm more interested in Thecla in that text than Paul. Mm. Um, because she's my model for how to think about um, forms of sexuality or oh, cool. forms of that disappear from from the the record. Um, yeah, I mean, we have this idea that that ancient sexuality is all about power and um, penetration. So um, that there is, I mean, sexuality is in a certain way always about power, I guess. But like the um, that it, this is that there's these very calcified roles of passive and active partners and 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 you know that's the grid for ancient sexuality and, and legibility uh, um, in terms of eroticism. Whereas Acts of Paul and Thecla, I think she's got a really interesting sort of um, portrait of of um, eroticism. Like uh, so, um, her relationships in that text, um, you know, she it's typically been classed as kind of like an ascetic text because she refuses marriage. That's one of the things that she does. She's um, refuses marriage and follows Paul and his teachings. And, and um, you know, she dons men's clothing and um, you know, so there's a part of this that is sort of about her virginity. Um, but the other part of this is that she has all these really exciting and what I would call like erotic experiences that don't fall that, you know, don't fall into our typical pictures of sexuality. So that text, like a lot of the texts in this, I'm not using them to tell a story about the history of Christianity as much as I'm using them to, um, as like a needle's eye to give us um, new pictures of antiquity at large in, in this period. I love it. Well, this book expands on the definition of materiality for me as a reader, for sure. 
And I'm curious where you see this work going next. Like what trajectories are occurring in your work and in the field since your work on this book wrapped up? Where do you see the future going? Yeah, I don't know. I wish I could say. I mean, I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, like the pandemic um, has put us, particularly the pandemic, has made us how made us aware of how woefully unprepared um, we are for futures. I, in, in a good way, I think that's true. Um, but we prognostication feels a little silly at this moment, in part because we don't know what we're in fully, and, and we, we don't know what we're going to be like after this whole experience has changed us. So I you know, and there's also this breakdown of the fields of religion and classics at, in higher education. You know, they're just, these departments are being destroyed um, yeah. slowly or quickly. And there's all these like massive losses for, of, you know, like there's for young scholars coming out of their PhDs. And, and, and of course, with closing in religion departments, not just young scholars, it's a terrible job market. There's lots of out of work academics. Um, and the field is going to be changed by that. And I think we're, it's hard to say right now what the field is going to look like going forward. Um, some of the most new and exciting work in the field is probably being, being lost to a terrible job market. And that, that feels really sort of um, chilling to me. But I hope, I mean, I like, yeah, I don't know. What am I doing next? I mean, I'm working on transformation and, and late antiquity, but, you know, and colonial things. Um, so that's what I'm working on. And it's, it's coming together um, over many years, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but I don't have, know. Do you have a, uh, like a description of your new project that you kind of want to like preview a little? Okay, preview. I guess I could preview something. Yeah, so um, if late antiquity is understood as a period of transformation, how do we think about that um, colonially? Colonially. Colonially. Um, how do we think of these stories of transformation, including things like Jesus transfiguration or ascetic transformation? Um, you know, how do we think of those things as not just personal or religious experiences, but as tied into, um, you know, the um, forced and, and difficult changes of, of colonial life? So th that would be the elevator speech. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Dr. Maya Katrositz, I'm curious if you can tell people where they can find you if they want to follow your work from now on. Oh, well, I have that, you know, I have academia.edu profile. Um, they can also just, you know, find my institutional email address and, and email me if they want, you know, digital copies of articles and stuff. Um, yeah, that's, I think I have some stuff on Humanities Commons too, probably. Love, uh, so the other day I was on uh, Twitter and somebody posted on Twitter, they said, how do I find a book that is more than $100 to buy, but um, is not in my library? And I responded and I said, just email them and ask if there are any options. So yeah. like people want, you know, other people to check out their work. And I feel like, you know, when you just said email me and I can send you a PDF of an article, I'm like, boom, that's right. Yeah. I love it when people are willing to share and to be open about the work, um, even within the strange world of academic publishing. Yeah. And I, it's so sad that our libraries are locked down. It's so anti-democratic and awful in, in so many ways. But this is what's great about your podcast, though, too, because I feel like you're sort of, uh, you know, increasing the channels through which ideas can happen. And, and that feels really important, especially with the huge lockdown we have on, on intellectual resources these days.
Well, that is so kind. Hopefully I'm uh, you know, doing some work that people appreciate out there. I definitely I just do this as a fun hobby because it keeps my brain turning. Um, but yeah, Dr. Maya Katrositz, author of the brand new book, The Lives of Objects, Material Culture Experience, and the Real in the History of Early Christian Christianity from University of Chicago's Class 200 New Studies in Religion series. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on a Sunday morning in uh, the beginning of winter. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. Really enjoyed it.